Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, Oteil Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters. And today is a really significant day. I'm sitting here in my studio looking at the date on my computer, Thursday, March 11th, exactly one year to the day since the String Dusters played our last show at the Belly Up in Aspen, Colorado, before a global pandemic changed everyday life as we knew it and sent shockwaves through the live music business, through our entire community in a way that nobody could have ever anticipated. And it has certainly been just an insane year since then. But today is not only significant because it marks that one year anniversary, it's also significant because even in the last two weeks since I taped my last podcast, there has been a really noticeable shift. And I feel like there is a pretty renewed sense of optimism, especially around the live music world. I know I'm feeling it, and I know that other people in my orbit are feeling it, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I do want to shine a light on what's going on. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in the intro here in a minute. I've also got an interview with Ronnie McCurry, Bluegrass Royalty, from the Del McCurry Band and the Traveling McCurries. Just an incredible picker, an incredible guy. And this interview was actually taped 
last year, a few months after the pandemic got rolling. So really interesting on this date as things start to feel like they're changing and evolving to look back at how it felt when we were in the midst of it. And there's also just some incredible and hilarious stories that Ronnie tells. So stick around for that. Inside the Musician's Brain is brought to you by Osiris Media, as well as the String Dusters new record label, Americana Vibes. And we have some great sponsors this season. Big shout out to new sponsor, Icelandic Skis. If you've been paying attention to the String Dusters feed or my feed over the years, you've definitely seen Icelandic on there. We've co-branded ski tours with them. We've gotten to know them well. Great people, incredible skis, all made in the USA, three-year warranty, beautiful, amazing original art by my man, Travis Parr, and just a great, very conscious, very cool community forming around Icelandic that I have loved being a part of. And mostly I just love ripping on these skis. Nomad 105, that's my ski of choice. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by EMG Pickups, another really hip company that's also made in the USA. I love that. And they're mostly known for their electric guitar pickups, but they make all kinds of great stuff, including pickups for acoustic instruments that I really swear by. I've been using their banjo pickup, the ACB barrel for years now, and they have an array of pickups for other acoustic instruments that are reliable and sound great. So for all your pickup needs, make sure to check out EMG. So like I said a minute ago, I feel like there has been somewhat of a shift out there. And I know I'm an optimist, but I've got a lot of optimistic energy coming at me right now. And just wanted to talk about that, shed a little light on it on this intro today. I'm Definitely privy to a lot of music industry conversations for obvious reasons. So this isn't just like a gut feeling. There are some very tangible things going on out there right now. People are getting vaccinated and case counts are coming down. Capacities for shows are going up and things are just kind of looking up in a way that I don't think I could have really predicted, say, a month or so ago. Now, all of this is so unknown. We never know what to expect. We haven't been through uh, an arc of history like this. So it's all very new. I think we should expect the unexpected. And there's no guarantees, but things are feeling pretty good. Now, it goes without saying that, of course, we all need to continue to be safe and do our part and respect the fact that people around us are potentially more cautious than we are. And I think all this is something that we definitely expected, but I didn't necessarily have the optimistic timeline coming into mind or potential timeline that I'm starting to formulate here in these past few days. It feels like there's been a shift. Now, we always knew that we'd have events this summer and the expectation was that those would be more socially distanced, but now those events are starting to increase capacity as the data allows and look a little bit more like the events, the summertime events that we that we know that we've been used to. And hopefully we will be able to experience a healthier dose, no pun intended, of some of the real key elements of live music, the big energy exchange between the crowd and the band, and just that life-giving feeling of community that we all get to be a part of when we gather in person for a concert. It's also really important to note that 
the economics of the whole situation of the whole equation becomes so much more sustainable with bigger capacities. Obviously, the band can make more money. The audience members don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for a ticket. And it's really fitting in a lot of ways that this new energy, this optimism is coming in conjunction with the arrival of spring, which always has this really tangible energy of new life. It's just in the air. There's always a feeling of opportunity this time of year. And right now, that feeling is just magnified, it seems like. There really is a big opportunity at hand. For many of us, especially those of us in the music industry, life as we knew it has been totally upended in this past year. And in some way, we're just staring at a blank canvas. And it's a very different feeling for musicians than when you have a full schedule of 120 shows a year, which most people in our roots music world do or did. And you can barely catch your breath between tours, let alone really take the time to envision a different or better future. So if you're a musician or if you're anyone, really, I think this really applies to everyone, make sure that you take the time to envision and subsequently manifest the future and the changes that you wanna see take place over this period that, that we have in front of us. What changes have been positive for you over the past year? What old patterns have you realized don't work? What things do you miss? And what new paths do you want to make time for and devote the energy to open up. Now is the time, is such a great time to really start thinking about these things and putting them into action. And I think the more vision that you can bring to the table, the more effective you'll be at not slipping back into old patterns that don't work because they're coming for you. And I think for musicians, that means designing a more balanced career that calls on skills that we've had the time to finally develop in this last year. And I talked a lot about that in the episode 11 intro. And I felt it on a band call that we had the other day. You know, we're, we're sort of sensing this evolution and there are a lot of dates pending, a lot of offers coming in and things are starting to move. And I just had this feeling that we could really easily slip back into those old patterns without that awareness, without that intention. So we're about to put our heads together and formulate a plan and manifest our most ideal future because it just really feels like now is the time to be discerning, listen to ourselves, and really try to grow from this experience because as we all know, from adversity comes strength and there is no time like the present. And this past year has truly dealt us a level of adversity that we have never known, and I think we can potentially answer that with a level of growth that we don't typically experience in such a short period of time. The table is really set for that. And I just wanna take a moment to express so much gratitude for all the support that music fans have showed to artists during this difficult time and also to let everyone know that we are about to return that favor. And I cannot wait, can't wait. It's a motivational speaker podcast intro. I'm fired up over here, 
feels good. All right, let's set up this Ronnie McCurry interview real quick. A little bit of context, because Ronnie is really a one-of-a-kind musician, and he is an important figure in the whole bluegrass world and in the history of music. And I should say that so is Rob McCurry, Ronnie's brother, banjo player extraordinaire. These guys are pretty key figures in bluegrass, and here's a short explanation of why. You know, bluegrass is really interesting. It is a young genre of music. It's only been around for about 75 years or so. And you know that's, that's not that old for a well-established style of roots music. And one really interesting fact about bluegrass is that during the time of my career as a bluegrass musician and enthusiast and the careers of our contemporaries, we've seen the passing on of the founders of the music, which is, of course, a huge step in the progression of any art form, any genre of music. And it's crazy to think that I met Earl Scruggs. I've seen Earl play. I've seen Ralph Stanley. I've seen Doc Watson. Andy Hall, the Dobro player in the String Dusters, he was in Earl Scruggs's band. How cool is that? And also crazy to think that the young pickers who are coming up today won't have the opportunity to see these titans of the music, the people who actually invented bluegrass perform live in person. But the influence of these musical giants and the legacy that they left behind is unmistakable. And I think now that they are gone, we can look back and get a more complete sense of the work that they've done. Bluegrass is such a well-established style of music, played and loved all over the world. We have our own category at the Grammys, more popular than ever before right now at this moment in time. And as we pass these milestones in the history and the evolution of the music, albeit sad, of course, to see these musicians go, we can really take stock of the fact that bluegrass is here to stay. And that is only because of how badass the music is, not because traditionalists are trying to preserve some definition of the music. And I think as the music grows up, we're starting to outgrow some of this confining energy that's just been around the music for as long as I've known it. People worried about whether things are traditional or not, and this divide between old school bluegrass and more progressive strains of the music. So now, in some way, as the forefathers pass on, I think we're growing up as a style and bringing in so many new fans and growing out some of those old trends. And of course, the other hugely significant aspect of this milestone is that they are passing the torch on to the next generation to represent bluegrass into the future. And at the center of that new generation is Ronnie McCurry. Now, it goes without saying that part, a big part of Ronnie's legacy is, of course, the fact that he's Del McCurry's son, been in the Del McCurry band for years, and Del McCurry played with Bill Monroe. He's actually first a banjo player and then rhythm guitar player and incredible singer who, of course, is now really at the forefront of that older generation of bluegrass legends. Dell is right there and still just killing it, by the way. So Ronnie has that strong link to the roots of the music. And of course, you can see that on paper, but more importantly, you can hear it in his music. And even if Ronnie's last name wasn't McCurry, he'd be an important figure because he has so much conviction, so much artistry in his 
playing and his singing, and they have amazing elements of the past of Monroe style, but with a very modern flavor as well. And I would say the same goes for all the amazing musicians in the McCurry camp. And another really cool thing about the McCurries is that they walk in both worlds. They have such a great reputation in the traditional world. They're also beloved by all the jam bands, and they've appeared with absolutely everyone played in front of so many diverse crowds and really introduced a lot of people to bluegrass music and really quality bluegrass music, I should say. And in many cases, that leads those new fans back to the founders of the music. And that's what happened with me. I got my first banjo just because I was a huge Bela Fleck and the Flecktones fan, had no idea what bluegrass was, got into playing the banjo. Of course, you're led back to bluegrass, and now I sing the praises of Earl Scruggs everywhere I go. And that's just how this whole progression works. Young artists find something they love that inspires them. They assimilate the aspects of that style that are meaningful to them. They add their own original touch, and then they create something original that then goes on to inspire more people. And this cycle is so alive and well in bluegrass music. And right at the center of it all is my man, Ronnie McCurry. Again, quick reminder that this interview was taped in May of last year, a mere two months into the pandemic, still so many unknowns. So we're going back in time. I was also just getting my Zoom interview game together. So there are some audio glitches. Please forgive me for that. And make sure you stick around for some of the stories toward the end of this interview. They are really phenomenal. Here we go. When it's burning low Only miss the sun When it starts to snow Only know you love her When you let her go Only know you've been high When you're feeling low Only hate the road When you're missing home Only know you love her When you let her go here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and we are coming to you from quarantine day. I don't even know what day it is anymore, but um, really excited today to be joined by my good friend, legendary mandolin player and singer from the Del McCurry band from the Traveling McCurries, Ronnie McCurry. Welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, Panda. Glad to be with you, brother. Yeah, I know. I wish we were seeing each other under different circumstances, but such is life. You know, we're, yeah, we're almost, we're about two months into this thing right now. And, uh, you know, I've wrapped up season one of the podcast right as things were sort of starting to unfold. Early March, the String Dusters were on tour. And, I'll never forget it as long as I live. You know, we were on the tour bus. We had shows in progress, and every day was sort of this heightened level of uh, awareness about the whole coronavirus situation. And then it seemed like all in one moment on Thursday, March 12th, it became clear to like every band in the universe at the same time that the only thing to do was pack it up and go home for the time being where where were you guys what 
what were you up to when the whole thing kind of, uh, you know, came to a head? Well, uh, the Travelers had just done, I think it was about a two-week thing. Uh, we, we left Nashville, you know, we, we fly a lot and then uh, rent a couple vehicles. And so we did a Northeast thing and actually flew from the Northeast to the Midwest. And it was about two weeks we were gone. We came home and uh, I have one one of my children left in school in the high school here, um, my daughter, Emma, and it was spring break. So we try to plan because, you know, uh, a couple of the guys have kids and the spring break comes and everybody wants to just get out. Sure. And be with family. So we, it was, uh, we had flights to Florida. Uh, my in-laws spend the winter down there and we were going to go down in, to Florida and uh, my brother, he took took off with his family to Florida, uh, a different part of Florida. But anyhow, that's where a lot of folks from this part of the country go. You know, it's warmer and the beach, you know, and all that stuff. So we went to, uh, we're going to go see my in-laws. And then we canceled our flights because, you know, everybody was, you know, the airlines and <laughs> airports and uh, didn't want to expose my in-laws to anything course so we rented a vehicle and uh took off and drove down and that would that that was the 13th okay and of course by the end of that week school was canceled you know already the dates were just falling away uh when we were coming back we were get we we're going to be gone a week and then come back and get on a bus with my dad and go for two weeks from here through Kansas and all over Colorado and down through Arizona, which, you know, we, we balance our lives here with the Del McCurry band and Travis McCurry's. Right. Right. So, um, long story short, that all went away <laughs> real quick. And then is <laughs> my parents' safety. Right. And then, then all the the folks that come to Delfest, you know. So right now, I mean, tell me what what are you what are you seeing as far as innovation surrounding this? Because you know they say necessity is the mother of invention, you know, and we are thrust into situations like these, and we have to find ways to adapt and. The reality is, and I've gotten this question a lot since we've been in quarantine and are communicating with fans, friends, family about our situation, and I don't think people necessarily understand how bands in our world, how tied we are from a revenue and earnings career standpoint to touring and playing shows. You know, it's just the, it's just the reality. And so now we're grounded you know, for, for the time being, and there's no real telling when that's going to let up. I'm curious to know, what are you seeing as far as innovation, ways to communicate with fans remotely, maybe new revenue streams or things that you guys are doing to, you know, not only sort of keep the wheels on the bus right now, but also to stay in contact with your fans and, and give them the music and sort of, keep growing your brand even when we can't get out on the road. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think that we're doing anything that's innovative. I think it's, we're kind of just sitting back saying, <laughs> what's going on here? And, you know, there's a lot of folks like yourself and your band that are, you know, really doing well at trying to keep connected, you know, as far as what we're doing, um, the travelers, unfortunately, haven't done a whole lot. Everybody's, <laughs> I don't know what it is exactly, but, but, you know, I've been on the road since I was 14 and I'll be, it'll be 40 years this coming year. So I have actually enjoyed the time of not doing anything. I bet you have. I really have, uh, and connecting with my family. Now, I'm, we're all still social distancing from my parents. And, and, and speaking of innovation, I know you sent me a picture the other day of you guys taping your dad's show, and mm -hmm. Dell is inside. You guys are outside on the porch. Looks like heaven was helping with the technical <laughs> yeah. aspect of things. And, but you're still keeping that thing going. Albeit yeah. from a from a safe distance, and um, and and that was that was cool. I hadn't seen that yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we had we uh, it had been you know you can only run so many reruns, you know, right? And and uh, because of my brother traveling like he did, like I traveled like I did, but we're still you know I'm the guy that goes out to the stores and has to do stuff, you know, my. My, my family really hasn't gone anywhere much, you know, and, and it's all to, uh, you know, be thoughtful through all this. And mainly it's, you know, because of your, the elderly and the ones you love. And I, you know, I don't want, <laughs> I don't, I surely don't want to expose my father and my mother, you know, to anything. Yeah. And, and they're, they're really, you know, hip to it all. And, you know, they're, my mother's totally like the, you know, clean freak and, you know, taking care of everything, which is the way it should be, you know, right now. I mean, there's, there's no cure for what we got going on. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not, it's not going away. There have to be, and I think this is one thing that we're learning right now, you know, and we're going to see a lot in these coming weeks as certain States try to sort of open things up again. And there are places that are trying to, uh, figure out what a gathering could be or could look like in this new normal, because until there's a vaccine or a treatment or something, we, you know, things aren't going to go back to normal and not, not in our world anyway. And no, so I, I do think that we will be one of the firsts because, you know, instead of, you know, Dirk Bentley and Chris Stapleton, people that we know who, sell thousands of thousands yeah. of tickets, <laughs> you know, yeah. the Rolling Stones, all that stuff. I mean, that's, that's kind of going to be a while. Yeah. And not that we, ours won't be, but it's, it's, we could ease into it a little bit better, I think, you know. Yeah. yeah. But as far, sure as far as what you're seeing, what you're sensing, when do you think we, we might get back out on the road again? <sighs> Oh man, I don't know. Uh, you know, my dad two weeks, two or three weeks ago. First of all, I got to say this. I think one of the cruelest things to come out of this is for someone in the twilight years of their life, like my father, 
who enjoys and loves what he does so much and can't do it. <laughs> For sure. And, you know, and there's so many people that, you know, are a lot like my father that are still, I think he's very vibrant. He's strong. He's all that. Oh, I'm, and, I'm here to confirm that for you. <laughs> He's as you know, vibrant and as strong as he could be. You know, and then to have a lot of that taken away, yeah. you know, in your twilight years like that, I think it's really cruel to me. I, I But it's it's what we're all facing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it, that's in my little world. <laughs> for sure. Now, Now, you take know. me back to what you started to say, something that I think is interesting, a perspective that I'm not sure that people are tuning into, you know, of course, it's an incredible loss and incredible challenge to the music industry. And my heart just breaks for all the young bands that have just finished that first, you know, two, three, four year push in a van and finally getting a foothold because, you know, that's the reality in the music world that we're a part of is touring is the only way to make it go. And the only yeah. way the only way to build a touring audience is to go out there and play a hundred, a hundred fifty shows a year, visit all these markets, and with all the competition out there, you know, there's no reason to expect anyone to come to your first show in Philadelphia. There's no reason to expect, you know, why? Sh- and so you got to build it one person at a time. And there's all these yeah. bands that you know, and small venues that are really suffering and will have to you know, really reboot. But then, you know, there there are musicians, I think what, what you said earlier was really interesting. You know, if someone had come to you and said, you can take, you know, a year off from what you're doing, just mm-hmm. hit pause, you know, and, and have probably more time at home than you, like you said, than you've had in the last 40 years. And <laughs> it's, it's hard to, you know, uh, focus on the silver lining of this because there is such a challenge implicit in the, what the world is going through. But it, it, that's something that I'm experiencing too. You know, it's just like, I, I feel like I, I've never had this experience, you know, I'm home with, with my girlfriend and our dog and I, I wake up in, in our bed every day and there's, there's something, you know, I, I think, I think really one of the only things you can do, you have to do, is be present with this situation and try to find that silver lining in it. And for a lot of us yeah. touring musicians, man, it this is I've never experienced this. No, no, man. I've I've lived out of a shaving kit for <laughs> all these years, you know. Did you un- did you unpack it finally? <laughs> I, I unpacked mine literally for the first time in fifteen years, you know, emptied right. it. You know, I I'm, well, mine's still hanging, but <laughs> <laughs> you're ready. You're ready to go. I'm ready. When in the case call it comes has. in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I really do feel bad for those young bands like that. You're right. You know, it hits. It hits hard there. You know, I'm. I, you know, they maybe they have set so much aside to finally go. You know, pull the trigger and do this. That's you know. Right. And, uh, and then this, the rug gets pulled out from underneath them. I, I feel for him, you know, and, and others that are already out there and got that head of steam, like you're talking about. I mean, it's hard for me to relate, I guess, yeah, you know, yeah. well, I, feel, I feel bad, but it's hard for me to relate because I've just, 
I've done what I've done so many years. I never, as a teenager, when I started playing, you know, I didn't think about going to college. I was in college as far as I was concerned. I was playing with all these guys that were, I was a teenager and the youngest guy, you know, was in his thirties. He was an old guy, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> We're the old kinda, guys now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I was going to tell you, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my dad said, you know what we ought to do? He said, I used to do this. And since then, I have seen that it uh, it came out for some folks. But he said, when I was playing, we used to play drive-in theaters, and they would stand, they would stand on top of the concession stand mm-hmm. with the microphones. And the cars were there. They had the speaker in the in the window, and they would honk after each song. Well, I I got an article uh, from someone that said uh, they're doing this in Lithuania. I don't know if you saw that or or not, but it was a uh, the drive-in DJ. concerts. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're do- they've got some in the states now. Yeah, and, and it's it's starting to crop up. Now, what do you? What is it like for you guys? I mean, your business is probably set up in a way where touring is the vast majority of the revenue, right? Well, yeah, and and you know, uh, we do 150, 160 uh, shows, you know, with my dad and the traveler. So it's 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 half the year, and then you would, you know what it's like to get to go, travel somewhere. You have to get there, so that's some more days, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 My father's a Grand Ole Opry member, so when we're in town, we play the Grand Ole Opry. Well, that's it's. They're going to try and open that up, I guess. You know, this this state's opened for a lot of things. You know, Tennessee and, um, but you know, like my dad is uh, such a live music. Uh, you know, when we play a show with him, it's all requests. You know, <laughs> I don't think people understand how cool that is you know and and how how hard that is to pull off but that is just quintessential mccurry's you know you guys the music is inside of you in a way that you know i mean you guys have just been living it for so many years i and i've of course you know i mean you guys you know I'll i'll take a moment just to express what a huge fan I was before we even met, before I was ever a professional musician. You know, I remember my first Dale McCurry record. I, someone gave me the family. And um, you guys are just, you know, when we talk about music and bluegrass, we refer to you guys as the unicorn band because you're the, you're the only band that's really risen to the top of both the bluegrass world and the jam world, you know, and those are two very different places, as you know, one so heavy on musicality and credibility. And then the other is just about community and experience and sort of the approval of your peers. And, you know, that, that's not, that's not an easy thing to do. And a lot of bands try, but you guys are one of the only ones who have made it happen. Wow. I've never really heard it put that way, but I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think, the, the authenticity is is the thing, you know, and, and that's that's the thing that you can't conjure up as a band. You could rehearse all day, but you know, like I said, you guys are just it's in your blood. And I wanna I wanna hear a little bit more about the history, but I'm curious to know before we shift gears. So we were talking about recordings and the evolution mm-hmm. of the music industry. 
What has it looked like over the past, say, 10, 15 years as streaming has really taken over and Mm -hmm. every record deal has changed, all the music stores are disappearing, and, you know, the the way that we spend our energy, what we focus on, live shows or recordings, has really changed to mirror that. We can't necessarily, uh, you know, justify putting all this time into the recording studio if it's not going to come back to us. Now, of course, you can't go without albums because that's your big moment of press and when you can, you know, push your profile uh, up a step. But what has it been like for you guys in terms of putting your focus on live shows or recordings, live recordings? How has how has that shifted, you know, in the recent past? Man, it has for sure, you know. I mean, as we all know, uh, just CD sales have just, you know, dropped 10 years ago to now it's amazing how it's fallen off and there is uh you know but there is lp sales <laughs> outselling cds so vinyl you, is back vinyl's back you know we it's amazing how much uh vinyl you can sell these days and, and I, i'm very appreciative of that you know i because i grew up in that world uh, collecting records and stuff like that but um and why do you think that is I don't, I, I don't know unless it's just the quality of the music or, or something, you know, the old saying, you got something you can hold and look at. I don't know what it is. For I people think that's that, a big part of it. You know, when you can pull up something on your phone and play it, or you can take the time to spin a needle. <laughs> yeah, well, it's two ends of the spectrum, you know. Now we have Spotify, and every right. song that's ever been recorded is in your yeah. pocket for right. half of what you used to pay for a CD. So yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to explain that math to kids who have grown up in the streaming era, but right. you know, one CD cost twice what it does for a monthly subscription to Spotify. You know, it's 10 bucks a month for, for premium. It's basically all the music you can listen to. And you know, these days you can save it on your phone. I mean, it's literally no different than having your collection there. You can listen to it offline. And then at the other end of the spectrum is, is the music listening experience. Like you say, holding this thing in your hand, sitting down with friends and the quality of the music also, you know, comes through in this, especially bluegrass, you know, more organic forms of music, I think shine on vinyl. Um, yeah. But it's just, it's incredible to think like how many CDs would you, you know, back in the day when I was just a fan of music and not yet a professional musician, you know, if you buy five, 10 CDs in a month, the amount of money that you're paying for music is so much higher than what anyone is used to today. And that money flowed to the artists and yeah. it allowed them to be, you know, more, uh, yeah, just more diverse in their careers. And, and these days it's like to get on the bus or else, you know, I mean, that's, that's the only, that's I've the got only thousands of CDs in my house, you know, still hanging like, on to them. I do. I mean, what am I going to do with them? Throw them yeah. away. I don't want to throw them away, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I've got, but you know, in, you know, my parents have, uh, 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 I don't know how many, because we have our own record company and we have different artists. You know, we have Larry Sparks, 
record, you know, we had, you know, I mean, he was on the label. Merle Haggard did a bluegrass record for us. We did uh, a record called Moneyland, all about the plight of middle America and uh, uh, different artists on that. And we have thousands of CDs in a storage. Yeah. And it's like, uh, we were just talking about this the other day. I mean, what are you going to do? Throw them all away? I mean, I guess that's, <laughs> you can't. Well, what are you going to do? Right, because you got to pay. I mean, we thought, oh, what are you to give them away to people? Well, you still have to pay artists, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because I mean, it's the format. You know, it's that's really what changed the whole tenor of the album record sales business. Is that in the CD era, you could get the music, you could capture it on this format, on this thing, nice. this disc that you could sell. When the format disappeared, so too did the industry around it and the rights holders. You know, you remember Metallica, you remember seeing Lars Ulrich in court railing against Napster because he had built his career around this certain convention that suddenly yeah. went away. And it's hard, you know, that's the nature of a lot of of a lot of business arenas. It's innovate and evolve. Yeah, or, or or die, and unfortunately for music, I feel like, and I don't necessarily consider it an evolution that we all just feel like we have to get on the road for you know 150 shows a year. That's, I mean, that's a that's a marathon, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know all about it, but you know, but you can't even buy a car with a CD player in it. Correct. You, know? you can't. You 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 uh, home stereos. You know, they just won't. They don't even hardly sell you a CD player anymore. I mean, yeah. Well, I hope that one of my big hopes that is this this whole situation that we're in right now leads the music industry back in a more artist-driven direction. Because I think that the way the industry is set up right now, there's just too many middlemen. There are too many ancillary players who have found a spot for themselves in an industry that used to be rich with money from cd sales and now the money cd sale money has gone away but the middlemen and all those business players have stuck around and it'll be interesting to see where the chips fall but you know like i say why are we accustomed to creating all this new content that just goes up online for free you know <laughs> and this could be the thing that changes that you know we'll we'll see yeah yeah yeah, well, that you know, what really makes you think: How does a band starting out survive? Because you know we've all spent our time at the merch table. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and bluegrass too. You know, you have to. Yeah. I mean, you you have to believe that this is going to have a big impact on the bluegrass world because yeah. you know. Well, so we already yeah. lost so many bluegrass festivals that we used to have they just fade away you know they faded away i mean i grew up that's all we used to do you know and live for them you know and now all those like we call them mom and pop type of festivals are gone man i mean it's down to you know it's it's like del fest is is a music festival we we didn't call it a bluegrass festival because it's not you know it's not that and, and because 
and what are we now? Twelve years old, I think. You guys have such a great thing going on there, man. Well, I appreciate Tell your it. Telluride of the East. That's what we call it. <laughs> no, it's great. It's really Dan Bush it's, calls it Telluride. <laughs> I love that. And you know, for those of you who haven't been lucky enough to make the trek to the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, it's it's also like you said, it's a music festival. And yeah. it it celebrates the the connections that bluegrass is making with the bigger music world. And, yeah. you know, there's so much discussion, of course, what is bluegrass and yeah. the more sort of traditional world, finding ways to make a meaningful connection with the leading edge of bluegrass, which is, I would argue, as popular as ever. You know, the the mm-hmm. the world, you know, the, the winter wondergrass, the Telluride mm-hmm. sort of community is thriving, you know, and... Uh, and I, it's it's interesting because those fans they are welcomed in the door. They don't know what bluegrass is. They don't care. They just mm-hmm. hear music that they like and they walk toward the stage. You know, it's that simple. <laughs> There's no um, preconceived notions. There's no judgments about what it should or shouldn't be. It's just a question of do I like this music or not? And bluegrass. In sort of that world, with you know, really open-minded fans flooding in from other genres, you know that that world has a lot of connections with the bigger music world. You know, I know you guys have, and again, this comes back to yeah. And I know you know the first time I ever saw you guys on stage was at the Fish Festival <laughs> Camp Oswego, and you know there I was watching you guys on a trailer and then there you are that night on stage in front of whatever it was a hundred thousand people playing (laughs) beauty of my dreams you know and (laughs) and that is happening and it's been happening for years you know that was i think Mm -hmm. 20 years ago you know and so these these connections have been percolating and there are certain events like telluride and delfest that really shine a light on that and that that seems like that's your guys' MO at the event is to is yeah. to make people see that and bring that connection to life. No, nah, man, you hit it on the head. I mean, that's 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 awesome. Man. Now, you made me think of uh, something talking about Telluride and people hear things, you know, and they, they just like the sound of it or whatever. Fishman told me <laughs> that he was at Telluride and he heard this guy singing and he said man i ran to the stage it was my dad awesome and it would have probably been like 93 or 94 or something like that you know and and they had already i guess been traveling in their van around the country when uh reverend moser uh he laid the my dad's latest cd at the time was blue side of town from 1990 i guess and i think he gave it to him and that's that's how they kind of got on board, you know. And he was sort of so, their their early bluegrass coach, Mosier. Yeah, he was the guru. Yeah, That's he right. was. <laughs> and what about you? When when did you connect with those guys for the first time? Wow, the first time I'm trying to. I'm not even sure the very first time. Right now, because we did quite a few things there in the 90s with them. You know, back then they had a lot of guests, you know. (laughs) And uh, they played here in town. 
there was a place in Nashville called the Starwood Amphitheater. Yeah. And uh, it's long gone now, but they came to town, they called me, and uh, we were recording at the time with at Ricky Skaggs' place here in Hendersonville. And they said, you guys want to come down, you know, and play? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll tell Dad, you know, we'll come down. I said, we're up here at Ricky Skaggs' place recording, and he, they said, I can't remember if I was talking to Trey or who I was talking to or Gordon at the time. And they, they said, you think Ricky would come down? <laughs> I love it. And I said, man, I'll, I'll ask him. And I, and, uh, so Ricky came down, you know, and I, we, I was already down there and I, I met Ricky at the gate and he had, he didn't know the guys, you know, and, uh, they, we, Sam Bush was there too. They had called Sam, you know, and we were backstage at, uh, running some tunes, you know, and Ricky came in and they were like, you know, one of the, one of our favorite records is uh, live in London, Ricky Skaggs, you know, and they, they wanted to do country boy. Amazing. <laughs> and Ricky's like, Oh, man. <laughs> I haven't played that in years, you know, I love it. And we got backstage and tried to run it down, but you know, time was slipping away and we, they, we just couldn't pull it off. You know, no, they, uh, it's intricate, yeah, you know, yeah, as yeah. you know, stops and starts sure, and sure. speed changes. So they kind of skipped that one. But, it, but at the same time, here we are trying to run some stuff down and, uh, the road manager came, came up back there and said, um, why not a judge here? <laughs> and she wants to sing Freebird. And uh, Whoa. the guys looked at, you know, they, they said, we don't know her, but that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> this was all and at the same show at the Starwood Amphitheater. This is all at the same show, you know. There's a, there is a video of this somebody did on an old cell phone that you can pull up and see. I, I didn't think anything besides the live recording, you know, but there is a cell phone video. Anyhow, she comes back, she comes in and she's wearing his scarves and all this, you know, she's country star Winona, you know. That's great. And she's like, hey, hey, boys, how you doing? You know, and before she walked in, they looked at me and said, do you know her? And I said, uh, <laughs> well, I, I have, I've been around the, the judge one time, you know, but I said, you know, Ricky knows her, you know, because so they came in and or she came in and she said, I want to do Freebird tonight because my divorce just went through. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> so she comes out. And it's a great little video. And because uh, I just saw it recently in the last two years or something, because this was back in, I, I'm not even sure when it was. but Now, were you guys all on stage? We were the, all on stage for, for Freebird. For, the, for this Freebird <laughs> statement from Winona Judd. That's so good. Dad's over there playing Freebird, you know. Wow. <laughs> if there was a G run, he'd have put it in there, but it Amazing. <laughs> didn't allow it. <laughs> and so then you you guys they became friends of yours over the years and you yeah. appeared well, with them a bunch of times. You know, 
Trey, Trey told me, he said, uh, back then, I guess when I, I'm trying to remember everything because he told me that, you know, when, when they got that CD, the blue side of town, he said, man, that was the most played CD in my house that, that year when we got that. I, he so said, good. I can promise you. It was the most played CD in my house. And I was thinking, wow. I don't think we knew him too well before Oswego. And then after that, uh, Gordon came to town and uh, I recorded with him. It was me and, and uh, El Bujo. Do you know him at all? He's a trumpet no. player from, from Arkansas. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I think it was his session. It was El Bujo's session. And uh, he played with them quite a bit, I guess, on and off. And we came and we cut at the old RCA Victor studio, man, just around like one mic. And it was a little bit something like Little White Dove was the name of this tune that, that he wrote. And Gordon played, and I played mandolin and Basser, I think, played the fiddle. And, you know, just around one mic, we did two or three tunes, and that was it. And what year was that? That would have been late 90s, early 2000s, something like that. Okay, okay. Mike so, played bass. And <laughs> so that was right around the time of that, um, of that show in New York, that Camp Oswego show. Yeah, what year was that? I knew you were going to ask. It me seems that. like it was like '97 or '8. No, because I was I was a little late. I think it was '99, I believe. Yeah, that's probably right. And I I don't know how aware you are, but so rare that they they never have guests anymore. But no. even at, at those events back in the day, I think you guys were the only other band to perform that weekend. No kidding. See, I didn't know we were there one day. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you guys played on a on a little trailer, sort of yeah, the, in no man's land there with mushroom the, stage or something. <laughs> it was called <laughs> <laughs> big mushrooms. I remember them in the field. You remember that? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And they had and they had the symphony. They had like a symphony performing with them because they would do you know three sets a day and they would play for just hours. Yeah. So, but then they had you guys up on the main stage with them, um, you know, and what that must have looked like, you know, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredible. You know, I've got some pictures of that from behind, you know, looking oh, out yeah, on the crowd. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was the biggest crowd we ever played in front of. Yeah. Now, do you, I feel like, uh, you know, uh, a key part of sort of what makes you guys unique, and this definitely ties into what I was saying before about, uh, you know, the, the place that you guys hold sort of being one of the, really the only bands to establish so much credibility in multiple music worlds. It seems like a lot of that flows from your dad and, you know, he coming from a, a, a musical world, the bluegrass world that could be, uh, you know, judgmental at times and, and, uh, you know, closed minded and I don't want to bash bluegrass because I think the music is so amazing and it has all the integrity in the world, but we all know the situation there. And so many of the fans play the music and have so, so many opinions about how it should be, but it seems like a lot of what put you guys where you are flowed from your dad's open-mindedness. Without a doubt. I mean, you know, uh, 
my dad has said it before and been quoted a lot, you know, he, he wasn't into Elvis Presley. He was into Earl Scruggs, you know, <laughs> that's what hit him like a hammer as a young kid. And later in life, you know, yeah, okay. He, he appreciated Elvis, you know, and all that, but it was the musicianship, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's where a lot of respect for my dad, uh, his musicianship, but he was, he was open-minded for sure. Now he spent his life honing bluegrass. I mean, he knows every aspect of it, you know, for sure. And then when, uh, when I was young and, and my brother too, he's four years younger, but you know, we were at the house and I grew up in, uh, you know, I was born in 67. So by the time I graduated in 1985, I was, uh, you know, just like any other kid in the 80s that uh, was listening to all kinds of music. And I I had to, you know, you, you can't help but hear rock radio at the time. And what, you know, classic rock was Led Zeppelin and Grateful Dead and Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner and that that kind of stuff I, I kind of gravitated to because I was really interested in. The first show I ever, first rock concert I ever went to I was 16 with my buddies because they were all I was into sports so all my sports buddies would you know if I spent the night or hung out or whatever just even before I was driving you know you would hear what they were listening to of course you know so the first rock concert I went to uh was Rush and I could not oh, believe yeah. the music coming out of three guys mm-hmm. you know I was in the in in Baltimore at this Coliseum. I was like, "Wow, it's only three guys." <laughs> <laughs> it was really amazing to me. And then I got into uh, uh, you know Almond Brothers and all that other stuff, the twin guitar stuff. I just loved it, you know, Southern rock. But you know, when I was about sixteen years old, Crispin had sent a uh, because I was so into Bill Monroe and my dad's music, and David Crispin was in California and off the radar and wasn't played on bluegrass radio or anything like that, you know, his music that, uh, he, he had sent this box of LPs and it was, um, early dog was the one that was it, that he was, he said, look, Dell, I put out this record. It's called early dog. And half of it is a live show that my dad and David, my uncle Jerry was in the band. Oh, Winnie yeah. Winston. Winnie oh, Winston yeah. was an awesome banjo player. Those guys. And, and so that's half of early dog. The other half is, you know, solo type recordings with Bill Keith and some other folks. And, and along with that was his music, you know, the David Grisman quintet stuff. And I got consumed with it. You know, I really dug it, you know, and then uh, my friends would say, oh, you play the mandolin, huh? Like uh, Led Zeppelin and the Grateful Dead's got some mandolin. And I was like, oh, really? Let me check this out. So I see David Grisman, the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and then the connection of Olden and the Way, you know, oh, yeah. it all comes in. And so, you know, my dad having some kind of, connection with Grisman for the, de- for the, a lot of the deadheads, you know, and then the time when I 
I spoke the other night to Falco about this too, about when I got to meet him, you know, and he, Garcia, and he says, you know, your dad was a big inspiration. It was the first time I ever saw the Bluegrass Boys. He was in the band, you know, and that, and he was singing Dark Hollow. And, you know, that fell into their repertoire. Oh, yeah. You know, my dad was the first guy to sing Dark Hollow and Bluegrass, you know. Okay, that's awesome. He was also the first guy to do I Wonder Where You Are Tonight with Bill Monroe and Bluegrass as his solo. Well, then Bill Monroe recorded it, and of course, Flat and Scruggs. It was just a country song. Yeah. My dad kind of brought it to the scene, you know. I was just playing along with Tony Rice Plays and Sings Bluegrass the other day. And <laughs> that cut on there, oh man. I mean, all the that's that's my my Rice record for Bluegrass. That's the one. But it's so cool, because and that's what I was saying before, you know, in that jam world, and you were saying, you know, Grisman and Garcia, and these guys are fans mm-hmm. of your dad's, and so much of that, the credibility in that world comes from association, you know, and the yeah. fans see, you know, those fish fans see you guys tapped to come up on stage, you know, or the Grateful Dead world. I mean, it's like this community yeah. of fans, and they want to learn about new music from these bands that they love. That's like a big part of the way that that works, you know? Mm-hmm. That's true. So, and how did you ultimately connect with the Grateful Dead guys? Uh, well, I uh, I had been to see them with, uh, uh, the first time I saw them was Philadelphia. I went with my buddies for two nights, slept in the pickup truck without a topper. I laid in the back with the, the, the uh, parking lot light above you. <laughs> Seriously? Oh my God, Ronnie, so good. You're on tour, man. <laughs> yeah, man. And my and my my buddy, it was his pickup truck with a bench seat. He said, "I'm sleeping in the front, man. You got the back." <laughs> <laughs> you know, about the time the sun comes up, though, is when we were laying down. But uh, I was really enthralled with the whole scene. It was like a bluegrass festival in a parking lot. You know. <laughs> and what year was that? Do you think? Eighty-seven, probably something okay. like that. And it was uh, the dead with Dylan in uh, at JFK, RFK is DC, JFK is was Philadelphia at the time. It's since been torn down. And man, that was really cool, you know. And I'd work my way to the front, you know. And I was watching these guys. It was two nights, you know. And Jerry was playing the steel, you know, with Dylan. Yeah. It was it was really cool, you know. I was like. That was my first live show of theirs. You know? But then what about how, how you connected with them as a musician, you know, and, and ultimately got to yeah. know the guys? How did that come about? Well, well, it just, you know, I was playing in Washington, D.C. at the National Folk Festival for two weeks, and this guy that uh, was running our stage, Tom Venom was his name, and Tom worked at the Smithsonian and he had written these books uh, on drumming and became really, really Mickey Hart got a hold of him and said, I love these books, you know, and they connected and I think they co-wrote a book or something or he, you know, wrote something in the book for Tom, but uh, you know, just very interesting guys, you know, and we were talking about the dead because they were coming to D.C. 
And he said, oh, yeah, you want to go see him? You know, and I said, yeah, I was hoping to go. He said, but do you want to you go backstage with the guys? I said, heck, yeah, man. I was like 18, you know, 19, something like that. And uh, so I, he knew Dennis McNally and he hooked us up and I went to Will Call. I said, now, how do you do all this? Because I didn't know anything about it, you know. I'm just a kid that goes to bluegrass festivals every week, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of a different scene. (laughs) I get an armband, you know. (laughs) And so I went to the will call and had these, you know, this laminate, you know, probably the very first laminate. One of the first I I could, you know, I, I hope I still have it somewhere. I'm sure I do. Unless I had to give it back. I can't remember, you know, like then you're going to give it back. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I wound up going, you know, backstage and I had taken about 10 cassette tapes uh, of my dad's music and my dad uh, with Bill Monroe and in Berkeley, California, where Jerry had seen the show. And, you know, I've just laid him on him. He was, he was on stage. He didn't come off of the stage. Uh, this was between the sets and I can't remember if it's between the sets or before the show. I'm sorry. I can't remember that, but, um, I just remember I went up on stage with McNally and he took me over to Jerry. Jerry's in this cubby hole surrounded by road cases, you know, with that cigarette. And, uh, he's sitting there and Hey Ronnie, how you doing? You know, <laughs> you had the you had, you had the cigarette hand was pretty accurate there. I got <laughs> I got to give you props for that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and uh, and we've got to talk for a few minutes, but I'm just a kid, you know. I don't. I'm, we but just he knows exactly who you are. Yeah, because of my dad, you know. Yeah, of course. And, and then uh, I don't think I met anybody else. Then you know, it was kind of like, okay, you can go, you know watch the show and then and then because of all my uh, dealings and everything with Grisman who you know uh, we had, like I said we went back a few years and he laid this mandolin on me and just the greatest guy you know and I he had reconnected with Jerry right right around then and uh, had been recording and he was really good at selling instruments and still is. He's incredible uh, at that. He just understands the value of them. And as you, as you know, I don't need to tell you, mm-hmm. you know, you know what he's up to. Then I found these banjos. I thought, oh, I'm going to do this. I want to make some money, you know? And uh, I think it's the only time I've ever sold anything. <laughs> <laughs> Twice. I had an old mandolin that I sold uh, to a guy. He really wanted it badly, and I never played it. That's the only two things I think I've ever sold instrument-wise. Short-lived career there for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm just not a good salesman, you know. (laughs) There's other things I'm great at, so I think it's okay. (laughs) I found these open-back banjos in a newspaper, and I went to this guy's house, and and I wound up buying them. And... uh, called David about him to get a value on him. And he was working with Garcia and he said, Hey man, he might be interested in these. And I said, really? And yeah, sure enough. 
So they come, he said, they're coming to town to, uh, to DC again. And I had this, uh, phone call from him, you know, leading up to it. He called me and <laughs> right. You were, is that the one where you were on the other line? Yeah, I had back then we had a thing called call waiting. And uh tell the kids about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in a me and my wife at the time, we weren't married yet, but we were living together in Pennsylvania and I was on the phone with a guy named Dave Burnus. And Dave had been a deadhead where he traveled with him, you know. And uh he also, at the time, the way I met him was he was running sound for Tony Rice. So cool. Yeah, and he had, you know, dat tapes and cassette tapes, and he was laying them on me, you know, of live shows. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, I got some good stuff. I bet you <laughs> We'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he's on, I'm talking to him when the phone does a call waiting, and I hit it, you know, and it's, Hey, Ronnie, it's Jerry. How you doing? <laughs> so, so I'm good. doing good, man. I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll be right back. I'm on this other line, you know. And I hit it and go back over to Dave. I said, Dave, man, that's Jerry Garcia. Well, hang up. Hang up. <laughs> <laughs> tell him I said hi. And he didn't know him. Though. He just said, tell him I said hi. Hang up. So then I talked to Jerry and I told him what was up. And he said, yeah, just come on down, you know. And, uh, so we, I took my dad, my mom, uh, my, my, my wife, uh, Allison and my sister and my brother, we all went down there and it was the cap center in Washington, DC and, and, uh, you know, parked around back, went down the ramp into the interior down there. And, uh, these guys had just finished sound check. So it was kind of. It was the dinner time around there, you know, and every, all the all the guys were sitting on these, you know, they they had catering everywhere, so all the guys were sitting around, you know. And Hornsby was in the band mm -hmm. at the time, and uh, we sat and talked for like an hour and a half, you know. I mainly listened, you know. Uh, didn't have too many questions. I just wanted. My dad had met him in seventy three, two or three, I guess in Warrington, Virginia, old in the way play. Mm. And my dad said, I was sitting there at my bus and David came up and he had this fellow with him with real black hair and a black beard. <laughs> he said, I want you to meet my, my banjo player, man. <laughs> so good. And that's, that's how they met. And he said, I'm, I'm looking for Porter church who David played with in the Red Allen band. He said, I want him to meet Porter church. So my dad said, Oh yeah, I know where he's at. You know, and he took him up to the, he had a little camper. He said, you know, and he took him up to the camper and they hung out for a little bit. But then my dad had to go play or whatever he had to do. But he said, I didn't see him again until that, that day we went, you know, night, say 20 years later, whatever it was. So they, they kind of did some reminiscing on bands, you know, and talking about the early days. And and uh, I guess Garcia could tell that I was, you know, enthralled with all this, you know. And he turned to me and looked me right in the eye and he said, I want you to know your dad was a big inspiration for me when I started. 
How cool. Yeah, it was really cool. You know, that's just what a kid needed to hear. It's like, wow, that is cool. You He's know, the man. that's right. <laughs> so, uh, it was funny, you know, I remember my wife, uh, I asked him about scuba diving cause you know, I was, you know, Rolling Stone magazine or whatever. had some article about him scuba diving. Yeah, you know? I used to love it. And, and I'd see these great pictures of him and he said, Oh man, I just, I love it. You know, I, I get out there and it's, you know, your weightlessness and he just, he was talking about scuba diving. I remember that was one thing. And then my wife said, cause she doesn't like the deep, dark ocean type thing. And she said, have you, have you ever seen a shark? And he's like real, he got real serious. She said, I have never seen one yet. I really want to see a shark, you know, (laughs) 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 but you know, he had all those beautiful, uh, colorful stuff. He'd go to Hawaii and see all these fish and his ties, you know, kind of, we always had these Garcia ties that looked like beautiful colors, you know, and, and I got a, I got a few good pictures with him, you know, and, Hornsby in there too. He was kind of hanging around. He knew, I think he knew who my dad was, you know, cause he's, he's pretty hip to music, you know? And then, and then he, Jerry ended up buying the banjos, right? And next, yeah, he sat there and played them a little bit, you know, and, uh, he just said, yeah, I'll take them, you know, not so whether for, he wanted them or not, you know, and, and, but no, I doesn't matter for your short lived yeah. career as an instrument dealer. Your sole client was Jerry Garcia. So let's just appreciate that for a minute. Yeah, that's right. I just, yeah, that's right. (laughs) You're like, I'm done. I'm done with that now. I can move on to other things. I wish I would, uh, I wish I would be able to get one of those back, you know, but I don't even think I documented the serial numbers or anything back then. Were they they like pre-war master tone resonator banjos or? Yeah, it was uh, the the lady. Uh, one of them was, uh, what's that? Uh, white lady? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a white lady. Yeah. Okay. And the open other one wasn't. It, both of them are open back. Okay. And, okay. and uh, yeah, I got my check, you know, from the Grateful Dead Productions because they owned everything. I know. I know. And I heard you, I mentioned this, I think, when you were talking to Falco the other night, or maybe he mentioned it, but it was such a mess after Jerry died, you know, because they had all this and this, that was the spirit of the band, you know, for better or worse, you know, in, in certain aspects better because they created this community and this model of what a band and, and their fans could be. But it was, it was quite a mess when, you know, he passed away and they had all this communal property and, and, and on top of that, they had so many, you know, kind of hands in the pot, you know, people who had relationships with them over the years and mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, it was, uh, it, it was a, a hard part of their legacy, but it's like, that's what they were. That's also what made them, you know, so, so beautiful. And you he- hear these amazing stories of them, you know, going to meetings back in the day with record executives, you know, all the potential in the world. And this is like pretty early on and they show up for a meeting with, guys in suits and 30 people pour into the room and start smoking, you know, passing J's around and everyone's got an equal say. And it's just like, how do you make, how do you make that work? But you know, there, there was something so, 
so beautiful about that, you know, and that's kind yeah, of what made them what they are. Man, I, I, I read where they had like a hundred employees, you know, there at the end and yeah. And then he passed and it was like, wow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I know this, it's, uh, it's cool to see them, you know, and, and O'Teal is a buddy and I'm, you yeah. know, I'm going to have him on here shortly and, and I'm excited to hear what he has to say, but you know, it's, it's cool to see them in what I think is a, a meaningful new iteration of the Grateful Dead, you know, say what you will about Dead and Company, but it, it giving, it's giving their fans a chance to commune like they always have, hear yeah. these great songs. And, you know, getting back to what we were saying earlier, you know, these big gatherings, and that's just one of the hardest parts about all of this is that they, they really have such meaning and when you hear people talk about a, a yeah. new normal you know in, in my mind yes we do need to adapt for the time being but man i can't wait till you know we can we can all go back out and stand shoulder to shoulder with people that we don't know in a field and have an experience with them that that's really yeah. meaningful you know those are those are just that's what we know live music to be. And I think that's one of the hard parts about this whole thing is that it, in an instant, it was sort of taken away from us, you know? So. Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's nothing like uh, we've ever seen. It's nothing like my, my parents have ever seen. I know. You know? I know. But, you know, I, I think, and I do really believe firmly, like I was saying before, I hope that there will be some adaptation around all of this that will push things in a more artist-driven direction. But I think the deeper that we go into this, we're also realizing, like I said, there's just no substitute for concerts. And I know that we'll get back to that. And regardless of what happens, you know, one thing that I think we can all find some solace in is just that music is so important. And it will never go out of style and people need it. And God, can you imagine how all the, the fans who had a summer of festivals to look forward to, you know, I, I, I feel for those guys too, you know, you know, I know you, you've seen this before, but probably with your own festival, but when you, when you had it, but it's people come to us and say, you know, this is our once a year, vacation this yeah. is what we reunion we vacation <laughs> yeah and reunion That's and right. you know people have fallen in love and met at these places and yeah, yeah. You know, we have kids named dell you know <laughs> i know it's so great well i have i have no doubt that all of that will carry on and um man i can't wait till the next time we can hang and hug and play music man i miss you man i mi i know i know i know i miss i miss our i miss our whole scene you know yeah. everyone it's it's really it's it's really a tough part of all this but um yeah but you know i'm i'm so glad we got a chance to connect today ronnie and yeah. um just great well, to you, see your face man and <laughs> you too you keep all this up man i'm yeah. i'm glad you're doing it you know it's thanks yeah, you, you guys have really, you know, you're, you're helping our music well, so much, you know. We, we love the music so much. And, you know, that's what, you know, that's what the conversation about bluegrass always comes back around to. It's not, it's not with any other intention than to 
get this music that we love so much out to so many people. And you guys are a big reason why, why we have such reverence for bluegrass and we've learned so much from you guys over the years. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's as deep as any art form out there. And I think, you know, thankfully people these days are, are really realizing that and the music is flourishing. I just, I can't wait to get back out there and jam for the folks again, man. But, uh, I hear you. Yeah, I know. I but hear you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And yeah. uh, let's stay in touch. And I sure do hope that I get to see you sooner rather than later, brother. Yeah, much love, man. And I'll, yeah. I'll catch you soon, I'm sure. Okay. Hey, you I'm, keep fishing, though. Oh, that's, <laughs> no, I, I, I prefer to do that six feet or much more away from other people. So that. <laughs> That part of it, that part of it is going to work out just fine. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, man, let's uh, let's stay in touch, and I wish you guys all the best, and uh, say hey to the crew, and let's talk soon. You got it, brother. All Thank right. you, man. Thanks, Ronnie. Mm-hmm. See you, man. Uh-huh. Bye, bud. That's going to do it for this episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you all so much for tuning in. That's some bluegrass history right there. Huge thanks to Ronnie McCurry for joining me today. Thanks also to Osiris Media and Americana Vibes for helping me to get the podcast out there and to our sponsors, Icelandic Skis and EMG Pickups. If you dig what you're hearing and you want to help us get the word out about the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hey, music fans. We wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. 
It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com, for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy. Enjoy.